Section 1 of The Golden Bough, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 1. The King of the Wood. The still glassy lake that sleeps beneath Odysseus' trees, those trees in whose dim shadow the ghastly priest doth reign, the priest who slew the slayer, and shall himself be slain. Macaulay 1. Diana and Verbius The Lake of Nemai Who does not know Turner's picture of the golden bough, the scene suffused with the golden glow of imagination in which the divine mind of Turner, steeped and transfigured, even the fairest natural landscape, is a dreamlike vision of the little woodland lake of Nemi. Diana's mirror, as it was called by the ancients. No one who has seen that calm water, lapped in a green hollow of the Alban hills, can ever forget it. The two characteristic Italian villages which slumber on its banks, and the equally Italian palace whose terraced gardens descend steeply to the lake, hardly break the stillness and even the solitariness of the scene. Diane herself might still linger by this lonely shore, still haunt these woodlands wild. Its Tragic Memories in antiquity, this sylvan landscape was the scene of a strange and recurring tragedy. In order to understand it aright, we must try to form in our minds an accurate picture of the place where it happened. For, as we shall see later on, a subtle link subsisted between the natural beauty of the spot and the dark crimes which under the mask of religion were often perpetrated there, crimes which after the lapse of so many ages still lent a touch of melancholy to these quiet woods and waters, like a chill breath of autumn on one of those bright September days, while not a leaf seems faded. The Alban Hills The Alban Hills are a fine, bold group of volcanic mountains which rise abruptly from the Campagna in full view of Rome, forming the last spur set out by the Apennines towards the sea. Two of the extinct craters are now filled by two beautiful waters, the Alban Lake and Celestis sister the Lake of Nemi. Both lie far below the monastery crown top of Monte Cavo the summit of the range, but yet so high above the plain that standing on the rim of the larger crater at Castel Gandolfo, where the popes had their summer palace, you look down on the one hand into the Alban lake, and on the other away across the Campagna to where, on the western horizon, the sea flashes like a broad sheet of burnished gold in the sun. The Sanctuary of Diana Nemorensis The lake of Nemi is still, as of old embowered in woods, where in spring the wild flowers blow as fresh as no doubt they did two thousand springs ago. It lies so deep down in the old crater that the calm surface of its clear water is seldom ruffled by the wind. On all sides but one the banks, thickly mantled with luxuriant vegetation, descends steeply to the water's edge. Only on the north a stretch of flat ground intervenes between the lake and the foot of the hills. This was the scene of the tragedy. Here in the very heart of the wooded hills, under the abrupt declivity now crested by the village of Nemi, the sylvan goddess Diana had an old and famous sanctuary, the resort of pilgrims from all parts of Latium. It was known as the sacred grove of Diana Nemorensis, that is, Diana of the wood, or perhaps more exactly, Diana of the woodland glade. Sometimes the lake and grove were called, after the nearest town, the lake and grove Aricia. By the town, the modern Aricia, lay three miles away at the foot of the mountains, and separated from the lake by a long and steep descent. 
a spacious terrace or platform containing the sanctuary on the north and east it was bounded by great retaining walls which cut into the hillsides and served to support them semicircular niches sunk in the walls and faced with columns formed a series of chapels which in modern times have yielded a rich harvest of votive offerings on the side of the lake the terrace rested on a mighty wall over seven hundred feet long by thirty feet high built in triangular buttresses like those which we see in front of the piers or bridges to break floating ice at present this terrace wall stands back some hundred yards from the lake in other days its buttresses may have been lapped by the water compared with the extent of the sacred precinct the temple itself was not large but its remains proved to have been neatly and solidly built of massive blocks of peperino and adorned with doric columns of the same material elaborate cornices of marble and friezes of terracotta contributed to the outward splendour of the edifice which appears to have been further enhanced by tiles of gilt bronze wealth and popularity of the shrine the great wealth and popularity of the sanctuary in antiquity are attested by ancient writers as well as by the remains which have come to light in modern times in the civil war its sacred treasures went to replenish the empty coffers of octavian who well understood the useful art of thus securing the divine assistance if not the divine blessing for the furtherance of his ends but we are not told that he treated diana on this occasion as civilly as his divine uncle julius caesar once treated capitoline jupiter himself bowing three thousand pounds weight of solid gold from the god and scrupulously paying him back in the same weight of gilt copper however the sanctuary at nemi recovered from this drain on its resources for two centuries later it was still reputed one of the richest in italy ovid has described the walls hung with fillets and commemorative tablets and the abundance of cheap votive offerings and copper coins which the site has yielded in our own day speaks volumes for the piety and numbers if not for the opulence and liberality of the worshippers swarms of beggars used to stream forth daily from the slums of erica and take their stand on the long slope up which the labouring horses dragged well-to-do pilgrims to the shrine and according to the response which their whines and importunities met with they blew kisses or his curses after the carriage as they swept rapidly downhill again even peoples and potentates of the east did homage to the lady of the lake by setting up monuments in her sanctuary and within the precinct stood shrines of the egyptian goddess isis and Bubastis with a store of gorgeous jewellery roman villas at nimai the retirement of the spot and the beauty of the landscape naturally tempted some of the luxurious roman nobles to fix their summer residences by the lake here julius caesar had a house to which on a day in early summer only two months after the murder of his illustrious namesake he invited cicero to meet the assassin brutus the emperors themselves appear to have been partial to a retreat where they could find repose from the cares of state and the bustle of the great city in the fresh air of the lake and the stillness of the woods here julius caesar built himself a costly villa but pulled it down because it was not to his mind here caligula had two magnificent barges or rather floating palaces launched for him on the lake and it was while dallying in the woods of nemi that the sluggard vitellius received the tidings of a revolt which woke him from his dream of pleasure and called him to arms vespasian had a monument dedicated to his honour in the grove by the senate and peoples of Attica. trajan consented to fill the chief magistracy of the town and hadrian indulged his taste for architecture by restoring a structure which had been erected in the precinct by a prince of the royal house of parthia 
Diana as the mistress of wild animals. Such, then, was the sanctuary of Diana at Nemi, a fitting home for the mistress of mountains and forests green and lonely glades and surrounding rivers, as Catullus calls her. Multitudes of her statutes, appropriately clad in a short tunic and high buskin of a huntress, with the quiver slung over her shoulder, have been found on the spot. Some of them represent her with her bow in her hand, or her hound at her side. Bronze and iron spears and images of stags and hinds discovered within the precinct may have been offerings of huntsmen to the huntress goddess for success in the chase. Similarly, the bronze tridents, which have also come to light at Nemi, were perhaps presented by fishermen who had speared fish in the lake, or maybe by hunters who had stabbed boars in the forest. The wild boar was still hunted in Italy down to the end of the first century of our era, for the younger Pliny tells us how, with his usual charming affection, he sat meditating and reading by the nets, while three fine boars fell into them. Indeed, some fourteen hundred years later, boar hunting was a favourite pastime of Pope Leo X. A frieze of painted reliefs in terracotta, which was found in the sanctuary at Nemi, and may have adorned Diana's temple, betrays a goddess in the character of what is called the Asiatic Artemis, with wings sprouting from her waist, and a lion resting its paws on each of her shoulders. A few rude images of cows, oxen, horses, and pigs dug up on the site may perhaps indicate that Diana was here worshipped as a patroness of domestic animals as well as the wild creatures of the wood. Diana as a patroness of cattle In like manner her Greek counterpart Artemis was a goddess not only of game but of herds. Thus a sanctuary in the highlands of northwest Arcadia between Clotor and Scythe owned sacred cattle which were driven off by Italian freebooters on one of their forays. When Xenophon returned from the wars and settled on his estate among the wooded hills and green meadows of the rich valley through which the Alpheus flows past Olympia, he dedicated to Artemis a little temple on the model of her great temple at Ephesus surrounded it with a grove of all kinds of fruit trees and doubted not only with a chase but also with a sacred pasture the chase abounded in fish and game of all sorts and the pasture sufficed to rear swine goats oxen and horses and on her yearly festival the pious soldiers sacrificed to the goddess a tithe bowed of the cattle from the sacred pasture and of the game from the sacred chase again the people of hyampolis in Phocis, worship Artemis, and thought that no cattle throve like those which they dedicated to her. Perhaps the images of cattle found in Diana's present at Nemi were offered to her by herdsmen to ensure her blessing on their herds. Analogy of St. Leonard in Germany In Catholic Germany, at the present time, the great patron of cattle, horses, and pigs is St. Leonard, and models of cattle, horses, and pigs are dedicated to him, sometimes in order to ensure the health and increase of the flocks and herds through the coming year, sometimes in order to obtain the recovery of sick animals, and curiously enough, like Diana of Arica, St. Leonard is also expected to help women in travel and to bless barren wives of offspring. Nor do these points exhaust the analogy between St. Leonard and Diana of Arica. For like the goddess, the saint heals the sick, he is a patron of prisoners, as she was of runaway slaves, and his shrines, like hers, enjoyed the right of asylum. Nemi an image of Italy in the olden time. So to the last, in spite of a few villas peeping out here and there from among the trees, Nemi seems to have remained in some sense an image of what Italy had been in the far-off days when the land was still sparsely peopled and tribes of savage hunters or wandering herdsmen when the beechwoods and oakwoods with their deciduous foliage 
reddening in the autumn and barren winter had not yet begun under the hand of man to yield to the evergreens of the south the laurel the olive the cypress and the oleander still less to those intruders of a later age which nowadays we are apt to think of as characteristically italian the lemon and the orange rule of succession to the priesthood of Emma at nimai however it was not merely in its natural surroundings that this ancient shrine of the sylvan goddess continued to be a type or a miniature of the past down to the decline of rome a custom was observed there which seems to transport us at once from civilization to savagery in the sacred grove there grew a certain tree round which at any time of the day and probably far into the night a grim figure might be seen to prowl in his hand he carried a drawn sword and he kept peering warily about him as if at every instant he expected to be set upon by an enemy he was a priest and a murderer and the man for whom he looked was sooner or later to murder him and hold the priesthood in his stead such was the rule of the sanctuary a candidate for the priesthood could only succeed to office by slaying the priest and having slain him he retained office till he was himself slain by a stronger or a craftier the priest who slew the slayer the post which he held by his precarious tenure carried with it the title of king but surely no crowned head ever lay uneasier or was visited by more evil dreams than his for year in year out in summer and winter in fair weather and in foul he had to keep his lonely watch and whenever he snatched a troubled slumber it was the peril of his life the least relaxation of his vigilance the smallest abatement of his strength of limb or skill of fence put him in jeopardy grey hairs might seal his death warrant his eyes probably acquired that restless watchful look which among the eskimos of bering strait is still to betray infallibility the shedder of blood for with that papal revenge is a sacred duty and the manslayer carries his life in his hand to gentle and pious pilgrims at the shrine the sight of him might well seem to darken the fair landscape as when a cloud suddenly blots the sun on a bright day the dreamy blue of italian skies the dappled shade of summer woods and the sparkle of waves in the sun can have accorded but ill with the stern and sinister figure rather we picture to ourselves a scene as it may have been witnessed by a belated wayfarer on one of those wild autumn nights when the dead leaves are falling thick and the winds seem to sing the dirge of the dying year it is a sombre picture set to melancholy music the background of forest showing black and jagged against a lowering and stormy sky the sight of the wind in the branches the rustle of the withered leaves underfoot the lapping of the cold water on the shore and the foreground pacing to and fro now in twilight now in gloom a dark figure with a glitter of steel at the shoulder whenever the pale moon riding clear of the cloud rack peers down at him through the matted boughs possibility of explaining the rule of succession by the comparative method the strange rule of this priesthood has no parallel in classical antiquity and cannot be explained from it to find an explanation we must go farther afield no one will probably deny that such a custom savours of a barbarous age and surviving into imperial times stands out in striking isolation on the polished italian society of the day like a primeval rock rising from a smooth shaven lawn it is the very rudeness and barbarity of the custom which allows us a hope of explaining it for recent researches into the early history of man have revealed the essential similarity with which under many superficial differences the human mind has elaborated its first crude philosophy of life accordingly if we can show that a barbarous custom like that of the priesthood of nemi has existed elsewhere 
if we can detect the motives which led to its institution, if we can prove that these motives have operated widely, perhaps universally, in human society, producing in varied circumstances a variety of institutions, specifically different but generally alike, if we can show, lastly, that these very motives, with some of their derivative institutions, were actually at work in classical antiquity, then we may fairly infer that at a remoter age the same motives gave birth to the priesthood of Neme. Such an inference and default direct evidence as to how the priesthood did actually arise can never amount to demonstration, but it will be more or less probable, according to the degree of completeness with which it fulfills the conditions I have indicated. The object of this book is, by meeting these conditions, to offer a fairly probable explanation of the priesthood of Neme. Legend of the Origin of the Nemi Worship, Orestes and the Tauric Diana I begin by setting forth the few facts and legends which have come down to us on the subject. According to one story, the worship of Diana and Nemi was instituted by Orestes, who, after killing Theos, king of the Tauric Chersonese, the Crimea, fled with his sister to Italy, bringing with him the image of the Tauric Diana hidden in a faggot of sticks. After his death, his bones were transported from Erica to Rome and buried in front of the temple of Saturn on the Capitoline slope beside the temple of Concord. The bloody ritual, which a legend described to the Tauric Diana, is familiar to classical readers. It is said that every stranger who landed on the shore was sacrificed on her altar, but transported to Italy, the rite assumed a milder form. The King of the Wood Within the sanctuary at Nemoi grew a certain tree of which no branch might be broken. Only a runaway slave was allowed to break off, if he could, one of the boughs. Success in the attempt entitled him to fight the priest in single combat, and if he slew him, he reigned in his stead with the title of King of the Wood, Rex Nemorensis. According to the public opinion of the ancients, the faithful branch was the golden bough, which at the Sable's bidding Aeneas plucked before he essayed the perilous journey to the world of the dead. The flight of the slave represented, it was said, the flight of Orestes. His combat with the priest was a reminiscence of the human sacrifices once offered to the Tauric Diana. This rule of succession by the sword was observed down on imperial times, for amongst his other freaks, Caligula, thinking that the priest of Nemi had held office too long, hired a more stalwart ruffian to slay him, and the Greek traveller who visited Italy in the age of the Antonines remarks that down to his time the priesthood was still the prize of victory in a single combat. Chief Features of the Worship of Diana at Nemi Of the worship of Diana at Nemi, some standing features can still be made out. From the votive offerings which have been found on the site, it appears that she was conceived of specially as a huntress, and further as blessing men and women with offspring, and granting expectant mothers an easy delivery. Importance of fire in her ritual Again, fire seems to have played a foremost part in her ritual, for during her annual festival held on the 13th of August, at the hottest time of the year, her grove shone with a multitude of torches, whose ruddy glare was reflected by the lake. And throughout the length and breadth of Italy the day was kept with holy rites at every domestic hearth. Bronze statutes found no present represent the goddess herself holding a torch in her raised right hand, and women whose prayers had been heard by her came crowned with wreaths and bearing lighted torches to the sanctuary in fulfilment of their vows. Some one unknown dedicated a perpetually burning lamp in a little shrine in Neme 
for the safety of the emperor claudius and his family the terracotta lamps which have been discovered in the grove may perhaps have served like a purpose for humbler persons if so the analogy of the custom to the catholic practice of dedicating holy candles in churches would be obvious diana as vesta further the title of vesta borne by diana and Nemo points clearly to the maintenance of a perpetual holy fire in her sanctuary a large circular basement at the north-east corner of the temple raised on three steps and bearing traces of a mosaic pavement probably supported a round temple of diana in her character of vesta like the round temple of vesta in the roman forum here the sacred fire would seem to have been tended by vestal virgins for the head of a vestal in terracotta was found on the spot and the worship of a perpetual fire cared for by holy maidens appears to have been common in latinum from the earliest to the latest times thus we know that among the ruins of alba the vesta fire was kept burning by vestal virgins bound to strict chastity until the end of the fourth century of our era there were vestals at tiber and doubtless also at lavinium for the roman consuls praetors and dictators had to sacrifice to vesta at the ancient city where they entered on or laid down their office diana's festival on august thirteen converted by the christian church into the festival of the assumption of the virgin on august fifteen at her annual festival which as we have just seen was celebrated all over italy on the thirteenth of august hunting dogs were crowned and wild beasts were not molested young people went through a purifactory ceremony in her honour wine was brought forth and the feast consisted of a kid cake served piping hot on plates of leaves and apples still hanging in clusters on the boughs the christian church appears to have sanctified this great festival of the virgin goddess by adroitly converting it to the festival of the assumption of the blessed virgin on the fifteenth of august the discrepancy of two days between the dates of the festivals is not a fatal argument against their identity for a similar displacement of two days occurs in the case of st george's festival on the twenty third of april which is probably identical in the ancient roman festival of the parilla on april twenty first on the reasons which prompted this conversion of the festival of the virgin diana into the festival of the virgin mary some light is thrown by a passage in the syriac text of the departure of my lady mary from this world which runs thus and the apostles also ordered that there should be a commemoration of the blessed one on the thirteenth of ab that is august another ms reads the fifteenth of ab on account of the vines bearing bunches of grapes and on account of the trees bearing fruit and clouds of hail bearing stones of wrath why not come and the trees be broken and their fruits and the vines with their clusters the virgin mary seems to have succeeded artemis and diana as a patroness of the ripening fruits here the festival of the assumption of the virgin is definitely said to have been fixed on the thirteenth or fifteenth of august for the sake of protecting the ripening grapes and other fruits similarly in the arabic text of the apocryphal work on the passing of the blessed virgin mary which is attributed to the apostle john there occurs the following passage also a festival in her honour was instituted on the fifteenth day of the month of ab that is august which is the day of her passing from this world the day on which the miracles were performed and the time when the fruits of trees are ripening further in the calendars of the syrian church the fifteenth of august is repeatedly designated as a festival of the mother of god or the vines and to this day in greece the ripening grapes and other fruits are brought to the churches to be blessed by the priests on the fifteenth of august now we hear of vineyards and plantations dedicated to artemis fruits offered to her and her temple standing in the orchard hence we may conjecture that her italian sister diana was also revered 
as a patroness of vines and fruit trees and that on the thirteenth of august the owners of the vineyards and orchards paid their respects to her at nemai along with other classes of the community we have just seen that wine and apples still hanging on the boughs formed part of the festal cheer on that day in an ancient fresco found at ostia a statue of diana is depicted in company with a procession of children some of whom bear clusters of grapes and in a series of gems the goddess is represented with a branch of fruit in one hand and a cup which is sometimes full of fruit on the other catalyst too tells us that diana filled the husbandman's barns with a bounteous harvest survival of diana's festival in italy sicily and scandinavia in some parts of italy and sicily the day of the assumption of the virgin is still celebrated like diana's day of old with illuminations and bonfires in many sicilian parishes the corn is then brought in sacks to the churches to be blessed and many persons who have a favour to ask of the virgin vow to abstain from one or more kinds of fruit during the first fifteen days of august even in scandinavia a relic of the worship of diana survived in the custom of blessing the fruits of the earth of every sort which in catholic times was annually observed on the festival of the assumption of the virgin the virgin mary and the goddess anatus there is no intrinsic improbability in the view that for the sake of edification the church may have converted a real heathen festival into a nominal christian one similarly in the armenian church according to the express evidence of the armenian fathers of the year seven hundred and later the day of the virgin was placed on september the fifteenth because that was the day of anahite the magnificence of whose feast the christian doctors hoped thereby to transfer to mary this anahite or anatus as the greeks called her the armenian predecessor of the virgin mary was a great oriental goddess whose worship was exceedingly popular not only in armenia but in the adjoining countries the loose character of her rites is plainly indicated by strabo himself a native of these regions the thirteenth of august a harvest festival among the celts of gaul among the ancient celts of gaul who to judge by their speech were near kinsmen of the ancient latins the thirteenth of august appears to have been the day when the harvest was dedicated to the harvest god rivers if that were so we may conjecture that the choice of a day in mid-august for the solemn celebration of the harvest home dates from the remote time when the ancestors of the celtic and italian peoples having renounced the wandering life of the huntsmen and herdsmen had settled down together in some land of fertile soil and temperate climate where harvest fell neither so late as after the cool rainy summers of the north nor so early as before the torrid and rainless summers of southern europe Egeria, water nymph and wife of numa but diana did not reign alone in her grove in nemai two lesser divinities shared her forest sanctuary one was Egeria, the nymph of the clear water which bubbling from the basaltic rocks used to fall in graceful cascades into the lake at the place called limol because here were established the mills of the modern village of nemai the purling of the stream as it ran over the pebbles is mentioned by ovid who tells us that he had often drunk of its water women and child used to sacrifice to Egeria because she was believed like diana to be able to grant them an easy delivery tradition ran that the nymph had been the wife or mistress of the wise king numa 
that he had consorted with her in the sanctuary of the sacred grove and that the laws which he gave the romans had been inspired by communion with her divinity plutarch compares the legend with other tales of the loves of goddesses for mortal men such as the love of cybele and the moon for the fair youth Attis and endymion according to some the trysting place of the lovers was not in the woods of nemi but in a grove outside the dripping porta capena at rome where another sacred spring of Egeria gushed from a dark cavern. Every day the Roman Vestals fetched water from this spring to wash the temple of Vesta, carrying it in earthenware pitchers on their heads. In Jovenel's time the natural rock had been encased in marble, and the hollow spot was profaned by gangs of poor Jews who were suffered to squat, like gypsies, in the grove. We may suppose that the spring which fell into the lake of Nemi was the true original Egeria, and that when the first settlers moved down from the alban hills to the banks of the tiber they brought the nymph with them and found a new home for her in a grove outside the gates the remains of baths which had been discovered within the sacred precinct together with many terracotta models of various parts of the human body suggest that the waters of Egeria were used to heal the sick who may have signified their hopes or testified their gratitude by dedicating likenesses of the diseased members to the goddess in accordance with a custom which is still observed in many parts of Europe. To this day, it would seem that the spring retains medicinal virtues. Verbius, the male companion of Diana The other of the minor deities at Nemi was Verbius. Legend had it that Verbius was a young Greek hero, Hippolytus, chaste and fair, who learned the art of venery from the centaur Chiron, and spent all these days in the greenwood chasing wild beasts with the virgin huntress Artemis, the Greek counterpart of Diana. For his only comrade, proud of her divine society, he spurned the love of women, and this proved his pain. For Aphrodite, stung by his scorn, inspired his stepmother, Phaedra, with love of him, and when he disdained her wicked advances, she falsely accused him to his father, Theseus. The slander was believed and Theseus prayed to his sire Poseidon to avenge the imagined wrong. So while Hippolytus drove in a chariot by the shore of the Saronic Gulf, the sea-god sent a fierce bull force from the waves. The terrified horses bolted, threw Hippolytus from the chariot, and dragged him at their hoofs to death. But Diana, for the love she bore, Hippolytus persuaded the leech Aesculapius to bring her fair young hunter back to life by his symbols. Jupiter, indignant that a mortal man should return from the gates of death, thrust down the meddling leech himself to Hades, but Diana did her favourite from the angry god in a thick cloud, disguised his features by adding years to his life, and then bore him far away to the deal to the dells of Nemi, where she entrusted him to the nymph Egeria to live there, unknown and solitary, under the name of Verbius, in the depth of the Italian forest. There he reigned a king and there he dedicated a precinct to Diana. He had a comely son, Verbius, who, undaunted by his father's fate, drove a team of fiery steeds to join the Latins in the war against Aeneas and the Trojans. Verbius was worshipped as a god, not only in Nemai, but elsewhere. For in Campania, we hear of a special priest devoted to his service. Horses were excluded from the Arician grove and sanctuary because horses had killed Hippolytus. It was unlawful to touch his image, some thought he was the son, but the truth is, says Servius, that he is a deity associated with Diana, as Attis is associated with the mother of the gods, and Erichthonius with Minerva, and Adonis with Venus. 
what the nature of that association was, we shall inquire presently. Here it is worth observing that in his long and checkered career, this mythical personage has displayed a remarkable tendency of life, for we can hardly doubt that the Saint Hippolytus of the Roman calendar, who was dragged by horses to death on the 13th of August, died on his own day, is no other than the Greek hero of the same name, who after dying twice over as a heathen sinner, has been happily resuscitated as a Christian saint. The Legends of Nemai Invented to Explain the Ritual It needs no elaborate demonstration to convince us that the stories told to account for Diana's worship in Nemai are unhistorical. Clearly they belong to that large class of myths which are made up to explain the origin of a religious ritual and have no other foundation than the resemblance, real or imaginary, which may be traced between it and some foreign ritual. The incongruity of these Nemi myths is indeed transparent, since the foundation of the worship is traced now to Orestes, and now to Hippolytus, according as this or that feature of the ritual has to be accounted for. The real value of such tales is that they serve to illustrate the nature of the worship by providing a standard with which to compare it, and further, that they bear witness indirectly to its venerable age by showing that the true origin was lost in the myths of a fabulous antiquity. Tradition that the Grove of Nemi was dedicated by a Latin dictator. In the latter respect, these Nemi legends are probably more to be entrusted than the apparently historical tradition vouched for by Cato the Elder, that the sacred grove was dedicated to Diana by a certain Egarius Babius or Levius of Tusculum, a Latin dictator, on behalf of the peoples of Tusculum, Erica, Lanuvium, Laurentium, Cora, Tiber, Pomentia, and Ardia. This tradition indeed sparks for the great age of the sanctuary, since it seems to date its foundation sometime before 495 BC, the year in which Pomentia was sacked by the Romans and disappears from history. But we cannot suppose that so barbarous a rule as that of the Arician priesthood was deliberately instituted by a league of civilized communities such as the Latin cities undoubtedly were. It must have been handed down from a time beyond the memory of man, when Italy was still in a far ruder state than any known to us in the historical period. The credit of the tradition is rather shaken than confirmed by another story, which ascribes a foundation of the sanctuary to a certain Manius Agarius, who gave rise to the saying, There are many Manii in Arichia. This proverb some explained by alleging that Manius Agarius was the ancestor of a long and distinguished line, whereas Others thought it meant that there were many ugly and devoured people at Arisia, and they derived the name Manius from Mania, a bogey or bugbear to frighten children. A Roman satirist uses the name Manius as typical of the beggars who lay in wait for pilgrims on the Arisian slopes. These differences of opinion, together with the discrepancy between Manius Agarius of Arisia and Agarius Lavius of Tusculum, as well as the resemblance of both names to the mythical Agaria, excite our suspicion. Yet the tradition recorded by Cato seems too circumstantial, and its sponsor too respectful to allow us to dismiss it as an idle fiction. Rather, we may suppose that it refers to some ancient restoration or reconstruction of the sanctuary, which was actually carried out by the Confederate States. At any rate, it testifies to a belief that the grove had been from early times a common place of worship for many of the oldest cities of the country, if not for the whole Latin Confederacy. Evidence of the Antiquity of the Grove A 
Another argument of antiquity may be drawn from some of the votive offerings found on the spot, such as a sacrificial ladle of bronze bearing Dinah's name in archaic Greek letters, and pieces of the oldest kind of Italian money being merely shapeless bits of copper, unstamped and valued by weight. But as the use of such old-fashioned money survived in offerings to the gods long after it vanished from daily life, no great stress can be laid on its occurrence at Nimai's evidence of the age of the shrine. Origin of the Arcadian Myths of Orestes and Hippolytus Part 2. Artemis and Hippolytus I have said that the Arician legends of Orestes and Hippolytus, though worthless as history, have a certain value in so far as they may help us to understand the worship at Nimai better than comparing it with the ritual and myths of other sanctuaries. We must ask ourselves, why do the authors of these legends pitch upon Orestes and Hippolytus in order to explain Verbius and the King of the Wood? In regard to Orestes, the answer is obvious. He and the image of the Tauric Diana, which could only be appeased with human blood, were dragged in to render intelligible the murderous rule of succession to the Arician priesthood. In regard to Hippolytus, the case is not so plain. The manner of his death suggests readily enough a reason for the exclusion of horses from the grove. This by itself seems hardly enough to account for the identification. We must try to probe deeper by examining the worship as well as the legendal myth of Hippolytus. Worship of Hippolytus at Troenzen He had a famous sanctuary at his ancestral home of Troezen, situated on the beautiful, almost landlocked bay, with groves of oranges and lemons, with tall cypresses soaring like dark spires above the garden of the Hesperides, now clothed the strip of fertile shore at the foot of the rugged mountains, across the blue water of the tranquil bay, which had sheltered from the open sea, rises Poseidon's sacred island, its peaks failed in the sombre green of the pines. On this fair coast, Hippolytus was worshipped. Within his sanctuary stood a temple with an ancient image. His service was performed by a priest who held office for life. Every year, a sacrificial festival was held in his honour, and this untimely fate was yearly mourned with weeping and doleful chants by unwedded maids who also dedicated locks of their hair in his temple before marriage. Hippolytus, a mythical being of the Adonis type. His grave existed of treason, though the people would not show it. It has been suggested with great plausibility that in the handsome Hippolytus, beloved of Artemis, cut off in his youthful prime, the usually mourned by damsels, we have one of those mortal lovers of a goddess who appears so often in ancient religion and of whom Adonis is the most familiar type. The rivalry of Artemis and Phaedra for the affection of Hippolytus reproduces, it is said, under different names, the rivalry of Aphrodite and Proserpine for the love of Adonis, for Phaedra is merely a double of Aphrodite. Certainly in the Hippolytus of Euripides, the tragedy of the hero's death is traced directly to the anger of Aphrodite and his contempt for her power, and Phaedra is nothing but a tool of the goddess. Moreover, within the precinct of Hippolytus and Troezen, there stood a temple of peeping Aphrodite, which was so named, we are told, because from this spot the amorous Phaedra used to watch Hippolytus at his manly sports. Clearly the name would be still more appropriate. It was Aphrodite herself who peeped, and beside this temple of Aphrodite grew a myrtle tree with pierced leaves, which the hapless Phaedra, in the pangs of love, had pricked with her bodkin. Now the myrtle, with its glossy evergreen leaves, its red and white blossom, and its fragrant perfume, was Aphrodite's own tree, 
the legend associated with the birth of Adonis. At Athens, also Hippolytus was intimately associated with Aphrodite, for on the south side of the Acropolis, looking towards Trozen, a barrow of sepulchral mound in his memory was shown, and beside it stood a temple of Aphrodite, said to be founded by Phaedra, which bore the name of the temple of Aphrodite at Hippolytus. The conjunction, both in Trozen and Athens, of his grave with the temple of the goddess of love is significant. Later on we shall meet with mounds in which the lovers of the great Asiatic goddess were said to lie buried. The divine mistresses of Hippolytus associated with Oaks. In this view of the relation of Hippolytus to Artemis and Aphrodite's right, it is somewhat remarkable that both his divine mistresses appear to have been associated at Troezen with Oaks, for Aphrodite was here worshipped under the title of Ascuria, that is, she of the fruitless oak, and Hippolytus was said to have met his death not far from the sanctuary of Saronian Artemis, that is, Artemis of the hollow oak, for here the wild olive tree was shown in which the reins of his chariot became entangled, and so brought him to the ground. Orestes at Troezen It may not be without significance that Orestes, the other mythical hero of Nemai, also appears in the legendary history of Troezen. For at Troezen there was a temple of wolfish Artemis, said to have been dedicated by Hippolytus, and in front of the temple stood a sacred stone upon which nine men, according to the legend, had cleansed Orestes from the guilt of his mother's murder. In the solemn rite they made use of water drawn from the horse's fount, and as late as the second century of our era their descendants dined together on certain set days in a building called the Booth of Orestes. Before the building there grew a laurel tree, which was said to have sprung on the spot where the things used for purifying the matricide were buried. The old traveller Pausanias, to whom we owe so much of our knowledge of ancient Greece, could not learn why Hippolytus dedicated a temple to bullfish Artemis, but he conjectured that it might have been because he extirpated the packs of wolves that used to scour the country. Hippolytus in relation to horses and wolves. Another point in the myth of Hippolytus which deserves attention is the frequent recurrence of horses in it. His name signifies either horse loosed or horse looser. He consecrated twenty horses to Aescalopes at Epidaurus. He was killed by horses. The horses' font probably flowed not far from the temple which he built for wolfish Artemis, and the horses were sacred to his grandsire Poseidon, who had an ancient sanctuary in the wooded island across the bay where the ruins of it may still be seen in the pine forest. Lastly, Hippolytus' sanctuary at Troezen was said to have been founded by Diomede, whose mythical connection both with horses and wolves is attested. For the Veneti, at the head of the Adriatic, were famed for their breed of horses, and they had a sacred grove of Diomede at the spot where many springs birth forth from the foot of a lofty cliff, forming at once the broad and deep river Timavas, the modern Timao which flows with a still and tranquil current into the neighbouring sea. Here the Vendetti sacrificed a white horse to Diomede, and associated with his grove were two others, sacred to Argive Hera and Aetolian Artemis. In these groves wild beasts were reported to lose their ferocity and deer to herd with wolves. Moreover, the horses of the district, famed for their speed, were said to have been branded with the mark of a wolf. Thus Hippolytus was associated with the horse in many ways, 
and this association may have been used to explain more features of the Arusian ritual than the mere exclusion of the animal from the sacred grove. To this point we shall return later on, whether his relation to wolves was also invoked to account for any other aspect of the worship of Nemi, we cannot say, since the wolf plays no part in the scanty notices of that worship which have come down to us, but doubtless, as one of the wild creatures of the wood, the beast would be under the special care of Diana. Hair offered before marriage to Hippolytus and others. The custom observed by Trozanian girls of offering tresses of their hair to Hippolytus before their wedding brings him into a relation with marriage, which at first sight seems out of keeping with his reputation as a confirmed bachelor. According to Lucian, youths as well as maidens at Troezen were forbidden to wed till they had shorn their hair in honour of Hippolytus, and we gather from the context that it was their first beard which the young men thus pulled. However we may explain it, a custom of this sort appears to have prevailed widely both in Greece and the East. Plutarch tells us that formerly it was the want of boys at puberty to go to Delphi and offer of their hair to Apollo. Theseus, the father of Hippolytus, complied with the custom, which lasted down into historical times. Argive maidens, grown to womanhood, dedicated their tresses to Athena before marriage. On the same occasion, Megarian girls poured libations and laid clippings of their hair on the tomb of the maiden Iphino. At the entrance of the temple of Artemis and Delos, the grave of two maidens was shown under an olive tree. It was said that long ago they had come as pilgrims from a far northern land with offerings to Apollo, and dying in the sacred isle were buried there. The Delian virgins, before marriage, used to cut off a lock of their hair, wind it on a spindle, and lay it on the maiden's grave. Young men did the same, except that they twisted it down of their first beard round a wisp of grasp or a green shoot. In some places it was Artemis who received the offering of a maiden's hair before marriage. At Panamara, in Cara, Men dedicated locks their hair in the temple of Zeus. The locks were enclosed in little stone boxes, some of them fitted with a marble little shutter, and the name of the dedicator was engraved on a square sinking in the stone, together with the name of the priest for the time being. Many of these inscribed boxes have been found of late years on the spot. None of them bear the names of women. Some of them are inscribed with the names of the father and his sons, or the dedications are to Zeus alone though Hera was also worshipped with him at Panamara. At Heropolis, on the Euphrates, youths offered of their beards and girls of their tresses to the great Syrian goddess, and left the shorn hair in caskets of gold or silver, inscribed with their names, and nailed to the walls of the temple. The custom of dedicating the first beard seems to have been common at Rome under the empire. Thus Nero consecrated his first beard in a golden box, studded with costly pearls on the capital. Such offerings intended to communicate strength of fertility, Egyptian practice. Some light is perhaps thrown on the meaning of these practices by two ancient Oriental customs, the one Egyptian, the other Phoenician. When Egyptian boys and girls had received from sickness, their parents used to shave the children's heads, weigh the hair against gold or silver, and give the precious metal to the keepers of the sacred beasts who brought food with it for the animals according to their tastes. These tastes varied with the nature of the beast, and the beast varied with the district. Where hawks were worshipped, the keepers chopped up flesh, and calling the birds in a loud voice, flung the goblets up into the air, till the hawks stooped and caught them. Where cats 
or eichnumens or fish were the local deities the capers crumbled bread in milk and set it before them or threw it into the nile and similarly were the rest of the divine menagerie thus in egypt the offerings of hair went to feed the worshipful animals syrian practice sacrifice of chastity regarded as a substitute for the sacrifice of hair in the sanctuary of the great phoenician goddess astarte at byblus the practice was different here at the annual mourning for the dead adonis the women had to shave their heads and such of them as refused to do so were bound to prostitute themselves to strangers and to sacrifice to the goddess of the wages of their shame though lucian who mentions the custom does not say so there are some grounds for thinking that the women in question were generally maidens of whom the sect of devotion was required as a preliminary to marriage in any case it is clear that the goddess accepted the sacrifice of chastity as a substitute for the sacrifice of hair why by many people as we shall afterwards see the hair is regarded as in a special sense the seat of strength and at puberty it might well be thought to contain a double portion of vital energy since at the season it is the outward sign and manifestation of the newly acquired power of reproducing the species for that reason we do suppose the beard rather than the hair of the head is offered by males on this occasion thus the substitution permitted at byblus becomes intelligible the women gave their fecundity to the goddess whether they offered their hair or their chastity but why it may be asked should they make such an offering to a stade, who was herself the great goddess of love and fertility what need had she to receive fecundity from her worshippers was it not for her to bestow it on them thus put the question overlooks an important side of polytheism perhaps we may say of ancient religion in general the gods stood as much in need of their worshippers as the worshippers needed them the benefits conferred were mutual if the gods made the earth to bring forth abundantly the flocks and herds to tame and the human race to multiply they expected that a portion of their bounty should be returned to them in the shape of tithe or tribute on this tithe indeed they subsisted and without it they would starve their divine bellies had to be filled and their divine reproductive energies to be recruited hence men had to give of their meat and drink to them and to sacrifice for their benefit what is most manly in man and womanly in woman sacrifices of the latter kind have too often been overlooked or misunderstood by the historians of religion other examples of them will meet us in the course of our inquiry at the same time it may well be that the women who offered their hair to a study hope to benefit through the sympathetic connection which they thus established between themselves and the goddess they may in fact have expected to fecundate themselves by contact with the divine source of fecundity and it is probable that a similar motive underlay the sacrifice of chastity as well as the sacrifice of hair hair offered to rivers as sources of fertility if the sacrifice of hair especially of hair at puberty is sometimes intended to strengthen the divine beings to whom it is offered by feeding or fertilizing them we can the better understood not only the common practice of offering hair to the shadowy dead but also the greek usage of shearing it for rivers as the arcadian boys of figalia did for the stream that runs in the depths of the tremendous woody glen below the city for next perhaps the rain and sunshine nothing in nature so obviously contributes to fertilize the country as its rivers again this view may set in a clearer light the custom of the delian youths and maidens who offered their hair on the maiden's tomb under the olive tree Delos and Delphi as centres of fertilization and of fire. For at Delos, as at Delphi, 
one of Apollo's many functions was to make the crops grow and to fill the husbandman's barns. At the time of harvest, tithe offerings poured in to him from every side in the form of ripe sheaves, or, what was perhaps still more acceptable, golden models of them, which went by the name of the Golden Summer, the festival at which these first fruits were dedicated, and seventh of the harvest month, Thargelion, corresponding to the 24th and 25th of May, for these were the birthdays of Artemis and Apollo, respectively. In Hesiod's day, the corn reaping began at the morning rising of the Flydes, which then answered to our ninth of May, and increased the wheat is still ripe about that time. In return for these offerings, the gods sent about a sacred new fire from both his great sanctuaries at Delos and Delphi, thus radiating from them, as from central suns, the divine blessings of heat and light. A ship brought the new fire every year from Delos to Lemnos, the sacred island of the fire god Hephaestus, where all fires were put out before its arrival, to be afterwards rekindled at the pure flame. The fetching of the new fire from Delphi to Athens appears to have been a ceremony of great solemnity and pomp. All of the chief Athenian magistrates repaired to Delphi for the purpose. The holy fire blazed was smouldered in a sacred tripod, borne on a chariot, and tethered by a woman who was called the fire-bearer. Soldiers, both horse and foot, escorted it. Magistrates, priests, and heralds accompanied it, and the procession moved to the music of trumpet and fife. We do not know on what occasion the fire was thus solemnly sent from Delphi to Athens, but we may conjecture that it was when the Pythiasts at Athens, watching from the hearth of lightning Zeus, saw lightning flash over Harma on Mount Parnes, for then they sent a sacrifice to Delphi and may have received the fire in return. After the great defeat to the Persians at Plataea, the people of that city extinguished all the fires in the country, deeming them defiled by the presence of the barbarians. Having done so, they relit them at a pure new fire fetched by a runner from the altar of the common hearth at Delphi. The Graves of Apollo and Artemis at Delos Now the maidens on whose gave the Delian youths and damsels laid their shorn locks before marriage were said to have died in the island after bringing the harvest offering, wrapped in wheat and straw from the land of the Hyperboreans in the far north. Thus they were in popular opinion the mythical representatives of those bands of worshippers who bore, year by year, the yellow sheaves with dance and song to Delos. But in fact they had once been much more than this. For an examination of their names, which are commonly given as Hercarriage and Opus, has led modern scholars to conclude with every appearance of probability that these maidens were originally mere duplicates of Artemis herself. Perhaps indeed we may go a step farther. For sometimes one of this pair of Hyperboreans appears as a male, not a female, under the name of fire-shooter, Hekergos, which was a common epithet of Apollo. This suggests that the two were originally the heavenly twins themselves, Apollo and Artemis, and that the two greys which were shown at Delos, one before and the other behind the sanctuary of Artemis, may have been at first the tombs of these great deities, who were thus laid to their rest on the spot where they had been born. As the one grave received offerings of hair, so the other received the ashes of the victims which were burned on the altar. Both sacrifices, if I am right, were designed to strengthen and fertilize the divine powers who made the earth to wave with the golden harvest, and whose mortal remains, like the miracle-working bones of saints in the Middle Ages, brought wealth to their fortunate possessors. Ancient pity was not shocked by the sight of the tomb of a dead god, the grave of Apollo himself was shown at his other great sanctuary of Delphi. 
and this perhaps explains his disappearance at Delos. The priests of the rival shrines may have calculated that one tomb sufficed even for a god, and that two might prove a stumbling block to any but the most robust faith. Acting on this prudent conviction, they may have adjusted their respective claims to the possession of the holy sepulchre by leaving Apollo to sleep undisturbed at Delphi, while his grave at Delos was dexterously converted into a tomb of a blessed virgin by the easy grammatical change of Hecargos to Hecarge. Hippolytus and Artemis But how, it may be asked, does all this apply to Hippolytus? Why attempt to fertilise the grave of a bachelor who paid all his devotions to a barren virgin? What seed could take root and spring up in so stony a soil? The question implies the popular modern notion of Diana or Artemis as a pattern of a straight-laced maiden lady with a taste for hunting. Artemis, a goddess of the wild life of nature. No notion could well be further from the truth. To the ancients, on the contrary, she was the ideal and embodiment of the wild life of nature, the life of plants, of animals, and of men, in all its exuberant fertility and profusion. As a recent German writer has admirably put it, from of old a great goddess of nature was everywhere worshipped in Greece. She was revered on the mountain heights, as in the swampy lowlands, in the rustling woods, and by the murmuring spring. To the Greek her hand was everywhere apparent. He saw her gracious blessing in the sprouting meadow, in the ripening corn, in the healthful vigour of all living things on earth, whether the wild creatures of the wood and the fell, or the cattle which man has tamed to his service, or man's an offspring from the cradle upward. Her destroying anger he perceived in the blight of vegetation, in the inroads of wild beasts on his fields and orchards, as well as in the last mysterious end of life in death. No empty personification like the earth conceived as a goddess was this deity, for such abstractions are foreign to every primitive religion. She was an all-embracing power of nature, everywhere the object of a similar faith. However, her names differed with the place in which she was believed to abide, with the emphasis laid on her gloomy or kindly spirit, or with the particular side of her energy, which was specially revered. And as the Greek divided everything in animated nature, into male and female, he could not imagine this female power of nature without her male counterpart. Artemis not originally regarded as a virgin. Hence, in a number of her older worshippers, we find Artemis associated with a nature god of similar character to whom tradition assigned different names in different places. In Laconia, for instance, she was mated with the old Peloponnesian god Carneosis. In Arcadia, more than once with Poseidon, elsewhere with Zeus, Apollo, Dionysus, and so on. The truth is that the word Parthenos, applied to Artemis, which we commonly translate virgin, means no more than an unmarried woman. And in early days, the two things were by no means the same. With the growth of a pure morality among men, a stricter code of ethics is imposed by them upon their gods. The stories of the cruelty, deceit, and lust for these divine beings are glossed slightly over, or flatly rejected as blasphemies and the old ruffians are set to guard the laws which before they broke. In regard to Artemis, even the ambiguous Parthenos seems to have been merely a popular epithet, not an official title. Artemis, a goddess of childbirth. As Dr. Farnell has well pointed out, there was no public worship of Artemis the chaste. So far as her sacred titles bear on the relation of the sexes, they show that, on the contrary, she was, like Diana, in Italy, especially concerned with a loss of virginity and with childbearing, and that she was not only assisted, 
but encouraged women to be fruitful and multiply. Indeed, if we may take Europide's word for it, in her capacity of midwife, she would not even speak to childless women. Further, it is highly significant that while her titles and the allusions to her functions mark out her clearly as the patroness of childbirth, we find none that recognize her distinctly as the deity of marriage. Nothing, however, sets the true character of Artemis as a goddess of fecundity, though not of wedlock, in a clearer light than her constant identification with the unmarried but not the chaste. Asiatic goddesses of love and fertility, who were worshipped with rites of notorious profligacy at their popular sanctuaries. The Ephesian Artemis At Ephesus, the most celebrated of all the seats of her worship, her universal motherhood, was set forth unmistakably in her sacred image. Copies of it have come down to us which agree in their main features, though they differ from each other in some details. They represent the goddess with a multitude of protruding breasts. The heads of animals of many kinds, both wild and tame, spring from the front of her body in a series of bands that extend from the breasts to the feet. Bees, roses, and sometimes butterflies decorate her sides from the hips downward. The animals that thus appear to issue from her person vary in the different copies of the statue. They include lions, bulls, stags, horses, goats, and rams. Moreover, lions rest on her upper arms. In at least one copy, serpents twine round her lower arms. Her bosom is festooned with a wreath of blossoms, and she wears a necklace of acorns. In one of the statues, the breast of her robe is decorated with two winged male figures, who hold sheaves in both hands. It would be hard to devise a more expressive symbol of exuberant fertility or profligate maternity than these remarkable images. No doubt the Ephesian Artemis, with her eunuch priests and virgin priestesses, was an oriental whose worship the greek colonists took over from the aborigines but that they should have adopted it and identified the goddess with their own artemis is proof enough that the greek divinity like her asiatic sister was at bottom a personification of the taming life of nature hippolytus the male consort of artemis to return now to troezen we shall probably be doing no injustice either to hippolytus or to artemis if we suppose that the relation between them was once of a tender nature than appears in classical literature. We may conjecture that if he spurned the love of women, it was because he enjoyed the love of goddesses. On the principles of early religion, she who fertilizes nature must herself be fertile, and to be that she must necessarily have a male consort. If I am right, Hippolytus was the consort of Artemis at Troezen, and the shorn tresses offered to him by the Troezenian youths and maidens before marriage were designed to strengthen his union with the goddess, and so to promote the fruitfulness of the earth, of cattle, and of mankind. It is some confirmation of this view that with the precinct of Hippolytus at Troezen, there were worshipped two female powers named Damia and Oxesia, whose connection with the fertility of the ground is unquestionable. When Epidaurus suffered from a dearth, the people, in obedience to an oracle, carved images of Damia and Oxesia, out of sacred olive wood, and no sooner had they done so, and set them up, the earth bore fruit again. Moreover, a in itself, and apparently within the precinct of Hippolytus, a curious festival of stone-throwing was held in honour of these maidens, as the Troezenians called them, and it is easy to show that similar customs have been practised in many lands for the express purpose of ensuring good crops. In the story of the tragic death of the youthful Hippolytus, we may discern an analogy with similar tales of other fair but mortal youths who paid with their lives 
after the brief rapture of the love of a mortal goddess. The hapless lovers were probably not always mere youths, and the legends which trace their spilt blood on the purple bloom of the violet, the scarlet stain of the anemone, or the crimson flush of the rose, were no idle poetic emblems of youth and beauty, fleeting as the summer flowers. Such fables contain a deeper philosophy of the relation of the life of man to the life of nature, a sad philosophy which gave birth to a tragic practice. What that philosophy and that practice were, we shall learn later on. 3. Recapitulation Verbius, the male consort of Diana We can now perhaps understand why the ancients identified Hippolytus, the consort of Artemis, with Verbius, who, according to Servius, stood to Diana as Adonis to Venus, or Attis to the mother of the gods. For Diana, like Artemis, was a goddess of fertility in general, and of childbirth in particular. As such, she, like her Greek counterpart, needed a male partner. That partner, if Servius is right, was Verbius. In his character of the founder of the sacred grove and first king of Nemi, Verbius is clearly the mythical predecessor or archetype of the line of priests who served Diana under the title of kings of the wood and who came, like him, one after the other to a violent end. It is natural, therefore, to conjecture that they stood to the goddess of the grove in the same relation in which Verbius stood to her, in short, that the mortal king of the wood and Rhys queen, the woodland diner herself, in the sacred tree which he guarded with his life was supposed, as seems probable, to be her special embodiment, her priest may not only have worshipped it as his goddess, but embraced it as his wife. There is at least nothing absurd in the supposition, since even in the time of Pliny, a noble Roman, used thus to treat a beautiful beech tree in another sacred grove of Diana on the Alpine hills. He embraced it, he kissed it, as he lay under its shadow. He poured wine on its trunk. Apparently he took the tree for the goddess. The custom of physically marrying men and women to trees is still practiced in India and other parts of the East. Why should it not have obtained ancient Latium? Summary of Results Reviewing the evidence as a whole, we may conclude that the worship of Diana and her sacred grove in Nemi was of great importance and immemorial antiquity, that she was revered as the goddess of woodlands and of wild creatures, probably also of domestic cattle, and of the fruits of the earth, that she was believed to bless men and women of offspring and to aid mothers in childbirth, that her holy fire, tended by chaste virgins, burned perpetually in a round temple within the prison, that associated with her was a water nymph, Egeria, who discharged one of Diana's own functions by succouring women in travail, and who was popularly supposed to have mated with an old Roman king in the sacred grove. Further, that Diana of the wood herself had a male companion, Verbius by name, who was to her what Adonis was to Venus, or Addis to Cybele, and lastly, that this mythical Verbius was represented in historical times by a line of priests known as kings of the wood, who regularly perished by the swords of their successors, and his lives were in a manner bound up with a certain tree in the grove, because so long as that tree was uninjured, they were safe from attack. The double-headed bust at Nemi, probably a portrait of the king of the wood and his successor. A curious monument of the ill-fated dynasty appears to have come down to us in a double-headed bust, which was found in the sanctuary at Nemi. It represents two men of heavy and somewhat coarse features and a grim expression. A type of face is similar in both heads, but there are marked differences between them, for while the one is young and beardless, with shut lips and a steadfast gaze, the other is a man of middle life with a tossed and matted beard, wrinkled brows, a wild anxious look in the eyes, and an open and grinning mouth. 
but perhaps the most singular thing about the two heads are the leaves with scalloped edges which are plastered so to say on the necks of both busts and apparently also under the eyes of the younger figure the leaves have been interpreted as oak leaves and this interpretation which is not free from doubt is confirmed by the resemblance of an oak leaf which the moustache of the older figure clearly presents when viewed in profile various explanations of this remarkable monument have been proposed but the most probable theory appears to be that the older figure represents the priest of nimai the king of the wood in possession while the other face is that of his youthful adversary and possible successor this theory would explain the coarse heavy type of both faces which is neither greek nor roman but apparently barbarian for as the priest of nemai had always to be a runaway slave he would commonly be a member of an alien and barbarous race further would explain the striking contrast between the set determined gaze of the younger man and the haggard scarred look of the other on the one face we seem to read the resolution to kill on the other the fear to die lastly it would explain very simply the leaves that cling like sermons to the necks and breasts of both for we shall see later on that the priest was probably regarded as an embodiment of the tree which he guarded human representatives of tree spirits are most naturally draped in the foliage of the tree which they personate hence the leaves on the two heads are indeed oak leaves as they have been thought to be we should have to conclude that the tree which the king of the wood guarded and personated was an oak there are indebted reasons for holding that this was so but the consideration of them must be deferred for the present a wide survey required to solve the problem of nemi clearly these conclusions do not of themselves suffice to explain the peculiar rule of succession to the priesthood but perhaps the survey of a wider field may lead us to think that they contain in germ the solution of the problem to that wider survey we must now address ourselves it will be long and laborious but may possess something of the interest and charm of a voyage of discovery in which we shall visit many strange foreign lands with strange foreign peoples and still stranger customs the wind is in the shrouds we shake ourselves to it and leave the coasts of italy behind us for a time end of section one